Uh, somebody posted, supporting a man at his highest but never at his lowest equals L crowd. That is true. You know, that that's true. And somebody else posted, I wouldn't be mad if they never want to if they never want to do Brazil again. I understand that that's not realistic with the history there and with how many fighters they have are Brazilian, but the city and country doesn't deserve another MMA event. I, I, I agree. I think, you know, if an area, a country, a state does something terrible like that, you know, abandoning, you know, leaving the arena, you know, not and not giving a fighter his just due. You know, not giving a fighter his his flowers who laid it all out there on who laid it all out there, you know, who put it all on the line like Glover did. Yeah, I don't think you should really <laughs> I don't think you should really go back. It's not realistic, but, you know, it would be nice to see, you know, them reap the consequences of that because that was terrible what they did. You know, somebody asked, I wonder if Brazilian fighters will be so eager to fight on a Brazilian card again. You want to fight in your country because you'll have the crowd standing for you. Not in this case. That's true. You know, I mean, that's true. I mean, you want to fight in a place where the crowd stands with you, but if they're so quick to abandon one of their own like that, what makes you think they won't do the same thing to you? title is harsh and there's a considerable amount of nuance to discuss here i am your big daddy and i am gonna kiss but i do think that by the time you finish this video you will have a much different perception of the current state of mixed martial arts and where it's going in the future because the reality of these efforts the reality of their potential success and the potential impact they could have is more complicated and i would argue far less dramatic than most would expect and hope so it's time for a strong dose of reality but not for me as i have often overshot what these efforts can and will do today real experts will be speaking on all three topics about the realities of their success about the realities of their impact. John S. Nash, a journalist who has been studying, writing about, and discussing the ins and outs of the MMA business and finance more prolifically than just about anybody on the planet. When I reached out to a lawyer familiar with the combat sports world, who I thought would have been perfect to appear in this video, they told me I was better off getting Nash because he was far more equipped to discuss all three topics. Jason Cruz, a lawyer, not the one who told me to get Nash instead. Jason has been published in law journals specifically about combat sports and antitrust. He's also the editor-in-chief of MMA Payout, a site dedicated to the business of mixed martial arts for over a decade. These two will be giving their expert opinions throughout the video as we discuss these three efforts and what they truly mean to the sport. So let's start with something that's already impacted the business of MMA a good deal, the antitrust lawsuits. The UFC is facing legal action from current and former MMA fighters, but what exactly is this lawsuit all about? The top 5% of the athletes in our sport make a pretty decent living. There's 95% of the athletes in our sport that are struggling to make a living. And the truth is, fighters are not paid what they're worth in terms of market dictated value. It's not a monopoly. You do have choices, but there's one clear top of the food chain right. choice, but it's because they do it the best. Potentially, I think they could be like $4 billion worth of damages awarded. I mean, does that concern you at all? With not even a little company? bit. It concerns me so much that I don't even know anything about it. One change always leaves the way open for the establishment of others. Niccolo Machiavelli. It's been over eight years since Connolly et al. filed their lawsuit against Zufa LLC. I guess the right to a speedy trial only counts in criminal cases. At current, the holdup is the eminent official written opinion of the plaintiff's class certification status by the presiding judge. You don't need to know what any of that really means besides the fact that it needs to happen in order for the trial to take place, but it will not be the last step before then. That'll be coming up. So after that, we have 30 days for the, Uf the UFC's attorneys to submit an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, that's the question. Will the Ninth Circuit take up the appeal? I do think there is a strong case. I think the UFC, the Ninth Circuit will turn down that appeal. Because the appeal will be based on the class cert. Was it proper class cert? That'll be, that's the limit. That happens that in 2024, we'd be looking at a trial. Jason Cruz is not as bullish on a 2024 trial date. All we need to start the appeal process is a written opinion. 
at that point, it would go back down to the trial court for further litigation. So we're talking multiple years before we actually get to a point where a trial date will be set. We could be looking closer to the later 2020s for this to actually sniff a courtroom. All right, so after a string of appeals, it does look like the lawsuit could go forward sometime between 2024 and 2030. Delayed justice is still justice, though, right? The fighters clearly have a case, so if this goes to trial, it's a slam dunk, isn't it? Well, not exactly. It really is dependent upon a lot of rulings that will go forward even before trial, a lot of pre-trial litigation that, that occurs. Could the fighters prove their particular case regarding monopoly and monopsony? That will be up to Judge Boulware and what evidence he will rely on when it gets, gets to that particular point. At this particular point, if he grants class certification for the bout class of fighters, I would foresee a hard road to prove the actual damages that they're, they're claiming. I've spoken to several other lawyers and experts as well that feel that if this case did go all the way through trial to a ruling, the chances of the fighters winning aren't great. But not all is lost here. While Jason did explain to me in our conversation he fully expects Endeavor to move forward with a trial and take their chances, at some point if the risk becomes too too high, a settlement could be met to avoid any potential catastrophic results. And if the fighters won outright and got what they truly seek, the results would be catastrophic for the UFC. The $5 billion in treble damages aside, the fighters would likely be granted one to two year contracts at maximum with hosts of current provisions wiped out, a move that would completely change the power dynamic. So how close would we get to that in a settlement? I don't think they would be drastically more what they currently did. Let's say if they went to a three year maximum sunset provision instead of the four year, I mean five year or four year even. That is still a major difference. Four years is a long time, but it's not, a lot of fighters do end up, you know, they fight two years and then at that point you're like, well, I want to sit out, I can sit out a year or two. That would be a massive victory for fighters. I do see them settling for probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, but think how big the UFC is now. Since they've waited this long in the case, that is not an existential threat to the UFC. That's not the end of the UFC. That's a portion of their EBITDA for one year. Let's say I'm just throwing out a number and I have no basis for what that number is going to be, but let's say they say it's, we're going to settle for $500 million. A few years ago, before Endeavor bought them, before they got an ESPN, that could have potentially crippled the UFC. Now it's like, well, you know, let's we, we kind of lose our profits for one year. They settled. I've accomplished it. It's like, you know, he, he's got it in his head that there's, there's bigger opportunities outside the UFC. You're looking at, you're going to fight arguably the greatest fighter of all time. You'd be the highest paid heavyweight ever in UFC history. Or you think there's more money out there to fight somebody who isn't the greatest of all time, somebody who is a lesser opponent. There's been other guys that have come to us and said, you know, I don't, I don't want to compete at this level anymore. Nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Niccolo Machiavelli. That quote was about the Italian Renaissance-era ruling class and their jockeying for power, yet it is somehow perfectly fitting in describing the never-ending struggle between fighters and promoters in mixed martial arts. At least it's seemingly never-ending. For many hopeful, there are three major efforts that could turn the tide for good. The holy trinity of change. The anti trust lawsuits against the UFC, ongoing litigation nearing the trial phase, in which the promotion could end up owing its fighters more than the total it was sold for to Endeavor, in addition to the ending of contract provisions that have kept fighters well under the UFC's boot, the Ali Expansion Act into mixed martial arts, a bill that would see the federal government step in and overhaul the sport's business structures, not just tipping the power balance in the fighters' favor, but flipping the sport on its head altogether, a bill potentially on its way to the House of Representatives again as early as this year. And lastly, a fighters association, the talent that makes this sport run, banding together collectively to protect fighters from promoters, giving them for the first time ever a true seat at the table and a way to finally set the terms of contracts and the business of mixed martial arts fair through the power of collective bargaining. At least, that's often how these three efforts are depicted and discussed. These grand, sweeping, sport-redefining actions, right on the cusp of succeeding and putting the UFC in their place once and for all. At 
last, giving the fighters power over their careers and the true cut of the pie that they've been denied since the very beginning. It's something I have done on this very channel. Depict these three actions as if MMA God will descend from MMA Heaven and completely change the sport in an instant with a mighty bolt of retribution, a feel-good sentiment that the hopeful can latch onto. This idea that huge change is just around the corner. The wheels are in motion. The cogs are falling. The fighters will inevitably get what they truly deserve. It's just a matter of time. But to again quote Machiavelli, men in general judge more from appearance than from reality. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and this is why MMA is broken and never getting fixed. Now, I know that title is harsh, and there's a considerable amount of nuance to discuss here. I am your big daddy, and I am gonna kiss the boo-boo. But I do think that by the time you finish this video, you will have a much different perception of the current state of mixed martial arts and where it's going in the future. Because the reality of these efforts, the reality of their potential success and the potential impact they could have is more complicated and I would argue far less dramatic than most would expect and hope. So it's time for a strong dose of reality, but not from me, as I have often overshot what these efforts can and will do. Today, real experts will be speaking on all three topics about the realities of their success, about the realities of their impact. John S. Nash, a journalist who has been studying, writing about, and discussing the ins and outs of the MMA business and finance more prolifically than just about anybody on the planet. When I reached out to a lawyer familiar with the combat sports world, who I thought would have been perfect to appear in this video, they told me I was better off getting Nash because he was far more equipped to discuss all three topics. Jason Cruz, a lawyer, not the one who told me to get Nash instead. Jason has been published in law journals specifically about combat sports and antitrust. He's also the editor-in-chief of MMA Payout, a site dedicated to the business of mixed martial arts for over a decade. These two will be giving their expert opinions throughout the video as we discuss these three efforts and what they truly mean to the sport. So let's start with something that's already impacted the business of MMA a good deal, the antitrust lawsuits. The UFC is facing legal action from current and former MMA fighters, but what exactly is this lawsuit all about? The top 5% of the athletes in our sport make a pretty decent living. There's 95% of the athletes in our sport that are struggling to make a living. And the truth is, fighters are not paid what they're worth in terms of market-dictated value. It's not a monopoly. You do have choices, but there's one clear top-of-the-food-chain right. choice, but it's because they do it the best. Potentially, I think they could be like $4 billion worth of damages awarded. I mean, does that concern you at all with the not even a little company? Bit. It concerns me so much that I don't even know anything about it. Change always leaves the way open for the establishment of others. Niccolo Machiavelli. It's been over eight years since Connolly et al. filed their lawsuit against Zufa LLC. I guess the right to a speedy trial only counts in criminal cases. At current, the holdup is the imminent official written opinion of the plaintiff's class certification status by the presiding judge. You don't need to know what any of that really means besides the fact that it needs to happen in order for the trial to take place, but it will not be the last step before then. That'll be coming out soon. After that, we have 30 days for the, Uf the UFC's attorneys to submit an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, that's the question. Will the Ninth Circuit take up the appeal? I do think there is a strong case. I think the UFC, the Ninth Circuit will turn down that appeal. Because the appeal will be based on the class cert. Was it proper class cert? That'll be, that's the limit. If that happens, then in 2024, we'd be looking at a trial. Jason Cruz is not as bullish on a 2024 trial date. All we need to start the appeal process is a written opinion. At that point, it would go back down to the trial court for further litigation. So we're talking multiple years before we actually get to a point where a trial date will be set. We could be looking closer to the later 2020s for this to actually sniff a courtroom. All right, so after a string of appeals, it does look like the lawsuit could go forward sometime between 2024 and 2030. Delayed justice is still justice, though, right? The fighters clearly have a case, so if this goes to trial, it's a slam dunk, isn't it? Well, not exactly. It really is dependent upon a lot of rulings that will go forward even before trial, a lot of pretrial litigation that, that occurs. Could the fighters prove their particular case regarding monopoly and monopsony? That will be up to Judge Bulware and what evidence he will rely on when it gets, gets to that particular point. At this particular point, if he grants class certification for the bout class of fighters, I would foresee a hard road to prove 
prove the actual damages that they're, they're claiming. I've spoken to several other lawyers and experts as well that feel that if this case did go all the way through trial to a ruling, the chances of the fighters winning aren't great. But not all is lost here. While Jason did explain to me in our conversation he fully expects Endeavor to move forward with a trial and take their chances, at some point if the risk becomes too high, a settlement could be met to avoid any potential catastrophic results. And if the fighters won outright and got what they truly seek, the results would be catastrophic for the UFC. The $5 billion in treble damages aside, the fighters would likely be granted one to two year contracts at maximum with hosts of current provisions wiped out, a move that would completely change the power dynamic. So how close would we get to that in a settlement? I don't think they would be drastically more what they currently did. Let's say if they went to a three-year maximum sunset provision instead of the four-year, I mean five-year or four-year even. That is still a major difference. Four years is a long time, but it's not. A lot of fighters do end up, you know, they fight two years, and then at that point you're like, well, I want to sit out. I can sit out a year or two. That would be a massive victory for fighters. I do see them settling for probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, but think how big the UFC is now. Since they waited this long in the case, that is not an existential threat to the UFC. That's not the end of the UFC. That's a portion of their EBITDA for one year. Let's say I'm just throwing out a number and I have no basis for what that number is going to be, but let's say they say it's, we're going to settle for $500 million. A few years ago, before Endeavor bought them, before they got an ESPN, that could have potentially crippled the UFC. Now it's like, well, you know, let's we, we kind of lose our profits for one year. They settle it. The investors might be take, they might take a slight hit, but the investors are now like, oh, it's settled. It's out of the way. We don't have to worry about this anymore. So at best, a settlement could likely see monetary compensation in the hundreds of millions. But remember, that number would be split across all UFC fighters over a seven-year period that qualify for class status. And some more potential contract concessions could be made, which could have a pretty big impact. At worst, the UFC crushes this lawsuit entirely in trial and nothing is gained. That's not entirely accurate, though. Even if the UFC did win and the fighters were given nothing, the fact that this has even happened has made an impact that often goes unappreciated. Kung Lee, Nate Corey, John Fitch, all those guys, they've actually accomplished stuff, and they get basically no credit. They all often get mocked by fans for being disgruntled, but they're the guys that got the contracts to change. They're the guys that got a hearing in Congress that released all the information about their UFC finances, so the talking point that everybody talks about, the UFC only pays 18 cents that didn't come from people like making it up or, or fighting on their own. That came from those guys in Discovery. So they've done a ton of the work and they get none of the credit. Of course, the agonizingly slow turning wheels of the justice system are not the only hope for fighter equality. The Ali Act expansion for mixed martial arts could be passed into law in theory over the course of just a single day's time. Representative Mark Wayne Mullen has at least suggested the idea of extending the Ali Act protections to mixed martial arts. Is that something you'd support? Absolutely. And I've already heard that the martial arts people are inclined to support such a measure. Couture, a cage star turned Hollywood actor, says the Muhammad Ali Act can help. The Ali Act means that he can't keep 85% of the money, that other people are going to come in and bid for those fights, and he has to be in a competitive wage market. Fighters are getting about 15% of revenues. In major sports, it's 50%. The Ali Act would change that. They take all the merchandise, they take all the pay-per-views, they take all the game, keep all the money, and then they just they give whatever they want to the fighter. Here's 100000 We think that's worthy, even though they made $100 million. The one who adapts his policy to the times prospers. And likewise, that the one whose policies clashes with the demands of the times does not. Niccolo Machiavelli. After I posted our recent video about the Ali Act and its potential impact. The excellent video you made. Don't, don't knock yourself there. To my dismay, I saw a tweet from the very John S. Nash in this video. Greatly respecting his work, I immediately messaged him on Christmas Eve, Eve no less, and asked if he would jump on a call to discuss the topic. Not only did he do so, he gave me over an hour of his time time, and it was that conversation that prompted the creation of this video as a follow-up. In my previous effort about what an Ali Act could do, I saw sweeping changes by the legislation, contracts nullified, new promotions popping up to make the market competitive, championships independent of the promotions, fighters taking control of the business, and the eventual slide into what boxing has become with four major sanctioning bodies and a mess of a sport. But there was one thing I hadn't considered well enough. Yeah, I mean, the Ali Act could, could, could conceivably radically change welcome back to the podcast all right so i don't know if you have heard if you haven't if you have or you haven't heard one championship will be making its u.s debut um 
which is weird because one championship actually has been in the U.S. before. They just were in Washington, but they moved out of Washington. It was after that whole head kick shabacle. Um, if anybody don't know, there was they Washington had a rule where they were allowed to soccer kick, but it couldn't be up against the cage. And of course, there were some fights that some deemed brutal. You know, Roger Huerta, and then. Andre Arlovsky, of course, he beat um, he he beat Tim Sylvia with soccer kicks. So yeah, that that's the gist of it. But um, but it was the Roger Huerta fight where people were like, Ugh, you know. But that wasn't because. But anyway, so they're back in the U.S. finally since I think it was since 2013. So it's been a while. And so, and they're back. And the headlining, of course, is Demetrius Johnson versus Adrian Marias. So it's going to be very interesting. So I just, so the question was going into this wasn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't the debut. It was more, the question into this was mostly due to the rules that they were going to use. What rules were they going to use? which was the burning question, or at least the burning question if you're a hardcore MMA fan. Um, what rules will they use? You know, are they going to use the rules used in the UFC or they, that are basically in the United States, or are they going to somehow get some wiggle room? So I Googled this, being the avid researcher that I am, and I actually found this out. And so, combo. So, if you you could fact check me, fact check me on this. It's on a website called Combat Sports Law. It's a Combat Sports League resource, and they had an article posted July twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. So this was like last year, last week. Um, last week, I reported that the Colorado became the first U.S. state athletic commission to approve the rule set used by one championship in mixed martial arts, which includes the use of knees to the head of a grounded opponents. What? Oh, my God. So not only will we be getting their judging, but we'll also be getting knees to the head of a downed opponent. This is going to be awesome. For the first time in the U.S., and I'll finish reading this article and I'll give you my thoughts. I made a further I made further I made a further open records request to the state to obtain a copy of the full rule set full to of the full rule set approved. One championship, a Singapore Singapore based promotion has the luxury of self-regulating events overseas. In Colorado, they will need a promoter's license and be subject be su and be subject to state regulation. Regulators will oversee events with their own officials by applying the approved rule set, which is called the One Championship Global Rule Set. Today, Colorado replied to my open records request. Below are the full rules approved in the state. One championship global rule set. So pretty much what they're saying is, is they're, 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 and so pretty much because they know that they're not a company within the U.S., they know that they're a company from overseas. They're they're pretty much writing it down as they're they're pretty much treating it like that. You know, they're their own company. They're not part of the U.S., so they're not bound by certain rules and regulations. That's just it's pretty much a fancy way of saying that they just had to, you know, pay, a, you know, they had to pay a couple dollars, you know, pay a couple dollars, move a couple pawns to, to get approved. But, you know, which which is great, which is great. One championship global rule, one championship, the global rule set. That's what it's called. The One Championship uses the global rule set, which blends a combination of best practices from Asian and non-Asian rules. Supervision locker room inspectors. One locker room inspectors and assistants will monitor the athletes and their teams to make sure nothing inappropriate occurs to prevent any breaches of the rules by any by an athlete or his or her team. A locker room inspector and a team of locker room assistants will be allocated to each pre-bout pre locker room red and blue corner. 
They will monitor the athletes at all times while in the locker room prior to the bout. Head Cutman. The head Cutman will assign will assign an official one Cutman, one Cutman to wrap the athlete's hands or witness a sign off. The wrapping of athlete's hand of the wrapping of athletes athletes' hands. Sorry about that. Cutman will also be cage sides to assist athletes during a bout. Excuse me. With swelling and cuts, hand wraps and Vaseline. The cut men appointed by one may apply hand wraps if the athlete chooses to use their own person to wrap the athlete's hand. The entire process must be witnessed, approved, and signed off by the one head cut man or cut man appointed by him. One will supply approved tape and gauze. If the athlete chooses to use their own tape and gauze, the athlete must submit it must submit it at the rules meeting and have it approved and kept in in the head cut man's possession until it is in the locker room. Approved tape and gauze are the only items allowed for the use of wrapping hands. And gauze cor correct hand wraps. Gauze may extend over the knuckles, over the hand and wrist. So pretty much this is. Basic stuff that you see, like, in regular combat situations in the, you know, like in the UFC and Bellator, from what, yeah, and it goes on about the metal examiner, all athletes must submit their medical records prior to the deadlines instituted by one championship. The organization will indicate which medical tests and blood tests have to be completed during the event week. Athletes must undergo a CT, CT, uh, a CT scan and a doctor's check prior to the match carried out by a doctor appointed by one championship. Delay in submitting medicals may result in a fine on the athlete's purse. Knockout in the event of an athlete has been knocked out by strikes to the head during his match. One championship will ask the athlete to undertake a CT scan or an MRI scan and be cleared to compete. The clearest scan must be presented as soon as possible to one championship. The athlete will not be given their next match by one championship until one championship has possession of the scan clearing. Athlete, clearing the athlete to compete. No exceptions will be made for this rule. So okay, so pretty much they're they're you know they're playing their case. So pre pretty much this is just the same stuff that they do like in the UFC and Bellator. You know they're just doing it for one, and it's not like one championship doesn't already do it. It's just this is giving like a set of rules and guidelines for them. Pretty much saying this is the structure for our athletic events. If you want your knees on the ground, you're going to have to follow this, these rules and regulations, which from so far from what I've read, they seem to be, they all seem to be very reasonable, pretty much the typical stuff. Um, if the cage tied uh, competition time limits, champion title bouts will consist of five, five minute rounds. One championship already does that. Titles with a maximum weight can only be won or defended if both athletes are at or under the proper weight. If the champion cannot reach the contracted weight within the three hours following the final weigh-in, they are obliged to defend the title. They are obliged to defend the title. They they lose their title, and they oh sorry when and they are obliged to defend the title. They lose their title. If the match is then won by the challenger, the challenger is the new champion. If the reigning champion wins the match, the title becomes vacant. The champion cannot retain the title since they did not achieve the title weight. If the challenger is too heavy, if the challenger is too heavy and the match continues and the champion is at the required weight, then the latter will remain the latter will remain the champion irrespective of the result of the match if both if both athletes are too heavy and the champion is obliged to defend his title the title is vacant after the match okay the champion is obligated to defend his title at least once a year if an official title defense offer is made if an official title defense offer is made and the champion cannot defend the title within a year it may become vacant at the discretion of one championship Normal bouts will consist of three to five minute rounds. One night, four man tournament 
one-night four-man tournament bouts will consist of two five-minute rounds. Holy shit. Wait a minute. So one – oh, so this is a new addition to it. If Let me repeat this. One-night four-man tournament bouts will consist of two five-minute rounds. So they're bringing back tournaments. Not the tournament – so they're bringing back one-night tournaments. Holy shit. One-night tournaments. One one night tournaments. This is actually really exciting. One night four man tournament bouts will consist of two to five minute rounds. So they're bringing back one night tournaments. This is fucking insane. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Holy shit. All bouts will have one minute rest break between each round. Legal technique standing, striking including striking including knee kicks, knees, punches, forearm, elbow strikes to the head, body and legs are allowed, with the exception with exception to illegal targets listed in fouls slash foul slash illegal issues. Clinching and standing submissions are legal. Alright, so so far. This is so far what we're getting from fans. So far, this is if you are, I mean, so far, if you are an MMA fan, this is a dream. Um, don't get me wrong, it's not like they could have done this overseas, they definitely can and they will. But the fact that this is being brought to the states. When, you know, back, that this is being brought to the States is absolutely amazing. I am excited beyond belief. They've brought one night tournaments. We're getting knees to the head of a grounded opponent. And this is, and that's all it is. That knees to the head of a grounded opponent. And, and that's all it is. That, that's, and all they had to do was just come up with a, with a, with a structure for them to really do that. Because that's really what it was. They had to, you know, no doubt they had to pay off a couple people. You know, probably, you know, make some pay- make some payments here and there. But they also had to bring some form of structure. Because when I'm reading, because when you, because when you read this document, if maybe me reading it to you, if I didn't do the best at reading it to you, you could read it for yourself. If you read it for yourself, you can see that in the document, it's pretty clear that... They obviously, when one championship presented this to Colorado, Colorado pretty much told them, hey, you can, you just have to have some sort of structure. You can't just do what you do in Asia where you just pretty much change the rules whenever you feel like it. You know, you can't just change the rules, add things, take things away. You have to bring some form of structure because a lot of people don't know this. Chitari, you know. Throughout the time that one championship has been around, Chitari has constantly changed the rules in one championship. You know, went from soccer kicks to no soccer kicks. It went from pile drivers to no pile drivers. So, you know, that's the thing. So Chitari has, you know, he's changed the rules a lot in one championship. So I'm pretty sure when he came to Colorado, Colorado pretty much that. So pretty much when he came to Colorado, it's obvious they told him you just got to bring some. You have to bring a structure. You have to bring a set of rules and guidelines before we can approve whatever it is you want to prove. You can't just come in and say, "Hey, I want to bring my company here and have my rule set." No, you have to have a structure. You have to have a set of rules and guidelines, which is what they did. You know, which is obviously what they did, hence why they call it the one. Hence why they call it, let me see, the one championship, the global rule set, which is why they call it the global rule set. You know, hence why they call it the global rule set. It's pretty much a set of rules and guidelines for one championship when you know when they compete in the states which of course they had to do they had to bring a set of guidelines which is what they had to do they had to bring a set of guidelines in order to get that to get you know to get what they want passed you know which makes sense and of course they probably paid some people here and there but that was it that's really all they had to do was bring a set of rules and guidelines 
for them to be allowed to run their shows the way they want their shows. And and kudos to Colorado, you know, kudos to fucking Colorado for not being a dick. You know, obviously, if they brought this anywhere else, it was they, they wouldn't have gotten this. So we'll move on. Grounded. Grounded. Athletes are considered grounded when they have any weight bearing part of their body other than the soles of their feet touching the ground. So let's repeat that. Athletes are considered grounded when they have any weight bearing part of their body other than the soles of their feet touching the ground. For example, an athlete with one or both hands touching the ground is grounded. An athlete with one or both knees touching the ground is grounded. All strikes, including knee, including punches, forearms, elbows. All athletes, all, all, I'm sorry, all hand strikes, including punches, forearms, and elbows to the head, body, and legs are legal. Any athlete may kick stomp to the body and and legs of a grounded opponent wait a minute holy shit wait a minute whoa 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 let's let's bring this back what an athlete may kick or stomp to the body and legs of a grounded opponent holy shit so you can stomp on somebody's stomach you could stomp on the body and legs of a grounded opponent holy fucking shit this is getting crazy. They may kick, stomp to the body and legs of a grounded opponent. Kneeing to the head of a grounded opponent is legal. Up kicks to the body and legs. Up kicks to the body and legs to a grounded opponent are legal. Up kicks to the head. Up kicks to the head, body, and legs of a non-grounded opponent are legal. So pretty so pretty much. Which I, I always found that one weird, you know, up kicks, you, you can kick people to the head when they're standing, but you can't kick them in the head when they're on the ground, which I, which I always thought was stupid, you know, but you know, all right, but hey, it is what it is, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, submissions are legal. Kicks to the head of a ground opponent are illegal and not permitted, which of course stomps to the head are legal and not permitted. Like I said, hey, you can still stomp to the body and stomp to the legs, so... You know, that's awesome. You know, the fouls and illegal issues are the same. You know, uh, stumps. Yeah, up kicks to the head, body, and legs of a non-grounded opponent are legal. Up kicks to the body and legs to a grounded opponent. To a grounded opponent are legal. Oh, man, this is great. Uh, pretty much fouls and legal issues. We all know, um, this is, it's the same, same stuff. Uh, no spiking, pile driving, suplexing an opponent onto his or her head or neck. All throws that are intended to spike the opponent or otherwise put the opponent's head, neck, or spine in jeopardy and jeopardy are illegal. Okay. So you can. So pretty much what they're saying with that rule is you can't you can't spike them, but you can throw them. So like you, yeah, you can't you can't necessarily like pick them up and pile drive them to the floor, but you can but you can grab them. You know you can grab them and hit them with a hip toss. You can hit them with a judo throw, you know, or a Reco Roman throw. So just you can't do it to the head or neck of the opponent. You know that exactly. Yeah, you can't do it to the head or neck of the opponent. You know, they, that's what they say. All the throws intended to spike the opponent or otherwise put the opponent's head, neck, or spine in jeopardy are illegal. So, okay. I mean, like I said, throws are, you know, like I said, you know, as long as you don't try to pile drive them, as long as you, which, like I said, I don't like that rule, but it's all, but it's all good. As long as you don't try to pile drive them to the floor, you just, you know, that's good. You know, you're good. You could still throw them. You just can't pile drive them. No grabbing the gloves, no grabbing the shorts, no grabbing a whole lot of Of course, we all know that. Um, pretty much, it's all the same thing. Pretty much.
investors might be take, they might take a slight hit, but the investors are like, oh, it's settled, it's out of the way, we don't have to worry about this anymore. So at best, a settlement could likely see monetary compensation in the hundreds of millions, but remember, that number would be split across all UFC fighters over a seven-year period that qualify for class status. And some more potential contract concessions could be made, which could have a pretty big impact. At worst, the UFC crushes this lawsuit entirely in trial and nothing is gained. That's not entirely accurate, though. Even if the UFC did win and the fighters were given nothing, the fact that this has even happened has made an impact that often goes unappreciated. Kong Lee, Nate Corey, John Finch, all those guys, they've actually accomplished stuff, and they get basically no credit. They all often get mocked by fans for being disgruntled, but they're the guys that got the contracts to change, they're the guys that got a hearing in Congress that released all the information about their UFC finances, so the talking point that everybody talks about, the UFC only pays 18-70%, that didn't come from people like making it up. Or, or fighting on their own. That came from those guys in Discovery. So they've done a ton of the work, and they get none of the credit. Of course, the agonizingly slow-turning wheels of the justice system are not the only hope for fighter equality. The Ali Act expansion for mixed martial arts could be passed into law in theory over the course of just a single day's time. Representative Mark Wayne Mullen has at least suggested the idea of extending the Ali Act protections to mixed martial arts. Is that something you'd support? Absolutely. And I've already heard that the martial arts people are inclined to support such a measure. Couture, a cage star turned Hollywood actor, says the Muhammad Ali Act can help. <laughs> The Ali Act means that he can't keep 85% of the money, that other people are going to come in and bid for those fights, and he has to be in a competitive wage market. Fighters are getting about 15% of revenues. In major sports, it's 50%. The Ali Act would change that. They take all the merchandise, they take all the pay-per-views, they take all the gain, keep all the money, and then they just they give whatever they want to the fighter. Here's 100000 We think that's worthy, even though they made $100 million. The one who adapts his policy to the times prospers, and likewise that the one whose policies clashes with the demands of the times does not, Niccolo Machiavelli. After I posted our recent video about the Ali Act and its potential impact, the excellent video you made, don't, don't knock yourself there. To my dismay, I saw a tweet from the very John S. Nash in this video. Greatly respecting his work, I immediately messaged him on Christmas Eve, Eve no less, and asked if he would jump on a call to discuss the topic. Not only did he do so, he gave me over an hour of his time time, and it was that conversation that prompted the creation of this video as a follow-up. In my previous effort about what an Ali Act could do, I saw sweeping changes by the legislation, contracts nullified, new promotions popping up to make the market competitive, championships independent of the promotions, fighters taking control of the business, and the eventual slide into what boxing has become with four major sanctioning bodies and a mess of a sport. But there was one thing I hadn't considered well enough. Yeah, I mean, the Ali Act could, could, could conceivably radically changed MMA as we know it, but the one thing that exists in MMA is the UFC. There's this 800-pound gorilla that has almost all the revenue coming through it. The UFC brand so strong, conceivably, they add sales to the pay-per-views. So they could still pay a smaller percentage, but much more than they're currently, and match whatever anybody else is paying, because their brand is going to add to the sales. Top fighters might make more now if they're free to leave to go to Showtime, PFL, or Bellator, but the UFC could easily increase the amount of their pay fighters uh, to match or surpass with those other ones, even if they're getting millions now, and still pay a much lower percentage than those other promotions. They just have to pay a much higher percentage than they currently do. You wouldn't see this fracturing because the UFC could easily still outbid everybody. So even if the Act was as far-reaching as it conceivably could be, you would still have a promotion with tons of money that could basically outbid, outperform any other promotion. People think the whole sport would be completely collapsed, but, you know, that we'd instantly be boxing. I do think if the, the big one is, do you separate the title from the promoter? And that's a big question because it's not clear in the Ali Act. It's just it's kind of suggested under the idea that you can't have compensation from a promoter to a sanctioned organization. But you can make that clearer in a new, uh, you know, a new expansion act. If you made that clear and made that sure that the uh, clarify that the promoter cannot be uh, have their own titles, have to use an outside independent sanctioned organization for titles. That's a huge impact because fighters now a promoter can no longer use the leverage of saying you can only get a fight for the title if you sign with us.
So if the wording of the Ali Act isn't exactly clear and the independent titles would actually make a huge impact, what changes did Senator Mark Wayne Mullen make to the original act when he introduced it in 2017 to expand into MMA? Well, the way he proposed it was just seems so hastily made and uh, just cut and paste uh, revision of, of Boxing's Ali Act. It would have been more impressive if he were to put forth some sort of specifics regarding MMA. I don't foresee any impact at all from the uh, Ali Act expansion that was proposed by Senator Mark Wayne. And I doubt, if at all, it would have any bearing on helping fighters' health and safety. And moreover, I don't see any worth in any legislative function as far as how that Ali Act expansion would go. It would be just a waste of time for any lawmaker to try to pass that thing. It's not, it's not worth anything. It doesn't do anything for MMA fighters. I personally don't think that the Ali Act for boxing has helped boxers that, that much because promoters have found ways around the legislation. I think that the, the boxing's Ali Act needs to be refreshed. All right, so the Ali Act has some problems, and as it currently exists, if it were to expand into MMA, would likely not see the sweeping changes expected by so many. There's another huge issue here, though. The act getting passed into federal law in the first place. Unlike boxing, I don't think there's a lot of people in Congress that are big fans of MMA. There's a handful. Boxing, there were a lot of Congress people that were fans of boxing, and they were aware of boxing. MMA still, I think, is viewed basically as a trash sport. It's just viewed as a freak show, human cockfighting, I think, so it doesn't get the attention perhaps that other sports would get especially boxing coming off the heels of you know ollie a few years before and then tyson did the whole don king so there was impetus back then for the build a pass so i think that'll be the hard part can you muster the support to get it to pass and on top of that you have this major entity endeavor with tons of money that will be lobbying against it you would have to have a groundswell of partisan support from both uh, democrats and republicans on this particular bill and if you just look at congress right now it's it's a mess, and I don't foresee uh, both sides of the parties supporting an MMA bill. You know, even then, it would have to get to the Senate, where it might have a little more traction because it would have gone through the House, but I just don't see what happening. We gotta remember with the uh, the the first up the Ali Act, the first bill, the Ali Act is an amendment to the Professional Boxing Safety Act. That passed in 1996. The first bill ever proposed, submitted to Congress to help boxers was 1960. It took 36 years. If there's there is multiple bills. It wasn't like the Ali Act and the Professional Boxing Safety Act and the Ali Act were introduced in their past. There was bill after bill after bill, Congress after Congress that was submitted and never passed. So it took a long time. So it's interesting to follow because it's interesting to see how much attention it can get, how much support, and it's always conceivable it could pass, right? It's always conceivable that the something could happen, the, the focus is on it and it passes, but I'm, I'm of the opinion, I'm going to kind of wait and see. Let's wait and see how much attention it has, how much support it has. Well, that didn't sound promising at all, did it? And so, with the fate of the antitrust lawsuit still very much in limbo and the likelihood of an Ali Act expansion not particularly great, what about the fighters taking control for themselves? Not on the hopes of a court ruling or of the government, but by their very own collective existence, by a fighters association. The problem is, like, the company is so big and they are getting bigger and fighters are getting smaller than everybody's. It's not a question of if it should happen at Union. It's a question of when it will happen. It will happen. Because it happened in boxing, it happened in, in basketball, in hockey. It's like we already don't have a lot of leverage, bro. Like, we, you know, yeah. We, just, there's only so many things that, that we could even do. We're here to take every step necessary to make sure that no athletic, no, no athlete, no fight in the UFC gets left behind. The healthcare and the, and, and the pension and the what do we do next and the and the what do we need to do right now? That, that's the part to me that that thing needs to be heard. I've been feeling like this for a long time, and I know that all the other fighters have too. Actually, it's just that uh, nobody wants to get on the bad side of the UFC. In the octagon, they're world class in defending themselves. Outside of the octagon, right now. They're, they're getting bullied, and it's almost embarrassing. And something has to change, and something has to change now. Men are so simple and so much inclined to obey immediate needs that a deceiver will never lack victims for his deceptions. Niccolo Machiavelli. I believe out of the three things we talked about today, an association would benefit fighters the most simply because it is the easiest path to 
getting what they want now. Fighters, they'll say off the record, maybe not on the record, but off the record, they'll say they want a union or an association, some sort of representation. I remember Chad Dundas did a, a survey of them, it was like 80%. And me talking to fighters, it's pretty clear that an overwhelming majority want it. So if a fighters association is the easiest route for fighters to take to get their fair share and the majority of fighters want it, why has this effort failed time and time again? Jeff Boris, the MMAAA, and most recently Project Spearhead. None of them have been able to get fighters collective bargaining rights. I attempted to get a hold of all the major players involved with Spearhead, but was unable to get any responses. Their last official tweet came in May of 2022, before that a whole two years back. And Leslie Smith, the interim president, has been inactive on social media for over a year. So what's the deal? Why hasn't this seemingly best option worked? The problem is, when you're an MMA fighter, your career might be two, three years at the point where you're at the top of the game and can make money. So any work stoppage, right, any risk to your career, momentum could be the end of any moment when you can make money or actually make a dent on the industry. And on top of that, there's nothing that says a fighter is one of the best fighters. Like we don't have independent sanction organizations. We don't, it's not boxing where the boxers own their rank. You know, the sanction organization put a rank, the boxer owns that rank. So they, can, they carry that rank with them no matter what promoter they're with. If you're an MMA, the promoter can cut you. The promoter can bring in someone else to the UFC, and those are now UFC fighters. You're no longer a UFC caliber fighter. There's nothing that limits the number of top fighters. It's all up to the promoter. Are you a top fighter or not? And so it's very risky for fighters to do anything. And if none of them will come out and speak about wanting to have an associate organization or organizing or solidarity or union or association, anything you want to do, well, then it just it, it has a chilling effect because everybody assumes none of the other fighters are going to do it. The problem I see with fighters and an association in like the UFC is that you have a good sum of fighters that are happy with the promoter, that are making a lot, or at least are in the good graces of the promoter, and you got a middle class that wants to be the higher class, and then you got a lower class that is just happy to be there. So it's hard for someone who's getting what they want, like a Dustin Poirier or maybe a Conor McGregor or somebody of that magnitude, to go out and say, you know, hey, Dana, we want to be bargaining as a unit, and what that means is we want a higher percentage of the fight revenue, we want a percentage of the sponsorships that you're receiving. Snap your W-2 and file Fed and State free. Simple tax returns only. See if you qualify. Get the TurboTax app now. We want a bigger, better purses. We want better insurance, things of that nature. And Daniel will probably come back and say, what? I've taken care of you throughout all this time, Dustin or Connor or whatever. Why would I concede these points when I've given you everything? And that is another problem with MMA. It's not like a team sport. It's not like you could be the San Francisco 49ers and say, hey, this is affecting all of us. And so even though fighters train together, it's not affecting one fighter when he goes in the ring and he wins, he gets 100 and 100 versus your training partner who starts in at 8 and 8. All right, so at this point, you're probably thinking, wow, Tommy, this is depressing. The antitrust suit is probably going to fail. Congress is a mess and they don't care about MMA. And the fighters themselves have to look out for their own best interests. And it makes collective action incredibly difficult. Even if these things were to come through, as we've talked about today, we might see some small wins here and there. Maybe some things change, but this sweeping wholesale fighter revolution that so many want just seems to be completely out of the cards. So I guess the title's right. MMA really is broken and is never getting fixed. But don't completely give up on the sport just yet. There's still possibilities, particularly if these actions compound their smaller successes into something bigger. The UFC has limited their contracts and got is a free agent now. Paulo Costa is going to wait out his contract because the UFC limited their contracts. So they could maybe do it even cut it shorter. They could there could be more limitations put on the contract that give fighters more ability to leave the promotions. The UFC, the UFC specifically in this case. But then okay, let's say after that they pass the Ali Act. Well, we have the Ali Act now. The promoters can't hold the leverage of the titles overs. The promoters can't use course of contracts. The promoters have to share their compensation. That gives us more ability. And on top of that, so I have I, my contracts more limited because the the antitrust lawsuit the Ali Act says I have uh, my control of my own rank and title now because of the separation between the promoter and the sanction organization and then I go okay now we force the association the association can enforce
reinforce the Aliak force, and that gives us more power and more leverage. And, and then even, even going further, the association, we can say we don't like the sanctuary organizations. We've organized an association that's strong enough. We're going to make our own sanctioning organization. We're going to get rid of the sanctioning organizations, and our association is going to make its own title. The fighters basically benefit from and control to make sure there's no corruption on that end. So that step by step, if you put them together, it becomes then it becomes a drastically different world. It is certainly possible that victories in each of these three major efforts would compound, would have a sort of domino effect. And that's also not considering that other completely unrelated legislation or rulings could come around that drastically affect the business of fighting, like the proposed FTC ban on non-compete clauses. So it's not entirely bleak, but the point of today's video was to give the reality of the situation with the opinions of real experts on the topics. These are going to be incredibly difficult roads ahead, and there's no guarantee that any one of them will make the impact that you hope for, or that any one of them will even succeed. There may not be a solution that ever comes to this problem, except of course the problem child himself, Jake Paul. The hope is that this video gave you a much better idea of the realities of the difficulties that face these efforts by fighters. The reality is it would take a lot of fighters willing to brave some serious heat, like Francis Ngannou, like Nate Diaz, like the antitrust suit plaintiffs, because as Machiavelli said, never was anything achieved without great danger. To, of course, give a huge thank you to John S. Okay, so he, here's my take on it. Okay, so here's my take on it. Th this is the problem that people don't understand. And of course, once again, I'm not going to get into so much of this video because it's the same old bullshit argument. The thing, the thing is this. For one, this guy needs to stop quoting Machiavelli. He doesn't know shit about Machiavelli, okay? He, he's making quotes about stuff he doesn't know or understand and trying to compare it to this situation. They're, they're not. So main, here's the thing. It's really simple. You get paid based off the revenue that you bring, okay? This is the problem that people don't un seem to understand or they seem to ignore, as well as it is your job we give you the platform to create a market for yourself. The UFC makes this really clear. Demetrius Johnson's even talked about this, how he understands what the U he understands the UFC's structure, and we give you the platform to mark to do to market yourself. We don't market for you. We give you the platform to create your own market. And that and it's very it's very simple it's very simple and it's to the point the problem is is everyone the, the the problem is is just like a lot of people they feel they're entitled they don't read the fine print they want to be carried and once again it's just like i said it's just and and like i said it's just the self entitlement is really don't understand the you get paid based off the revenue that you bring it's very that simple, you know, a manager of Walmart, a regular Walmart employee should not be paid the same as a manager. And the thing also too, it's like they're a big company, they're paying a lot of different people. So of course, everyone's going to get paid differently. You're not going to get the same amount as this fighter or that fighter or this employee or that employee. That's just how it is. But the problem is now, do I agree the UFC makes some decisions that are that are questionable? Absolutely. You know, the UFC does make questionable decisions, you know, eliminating the use of sponsors and only, you know, structuring it to where only one sponsor. Yeah, I, I, I disagree. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't agree with that. And I absolutely think like the infamous Reebok deal, the infamous Reebok deal was was a stupid idea and it was stupid to eliminate the use of sponsors that the the use of sponsors for the fighters very stupid very stupid thing to do but overall at the end of the day it doesn't change the fact that you get paid based off the revenue that you bring and that's just the and that's just the truth of it the other thing is is once again just like these just like MMA on point and so many other people they don't understand Allowing government into a system is not good, okay? I don't know why people still have this idea that bringing in the government is going to be beneficial when it comes to things like this, okay? 
having the government in your in having the government involved in sports having the government in something like this is not good it's not good for everybody because you're not going to get the best you're going to get the mediocre okay you're going to have more hands in the more greedy hands in the pot and those greedy hands are going to take more once again look at boxing you want to know why fighters in boxing get get paid get paid so much Here's the details that they don't realize because they have to pay tons and tons of sanctioning bodies. They're not paying one sanctioning body. They're paying multiple sanctioning sanctioning bodies as well as multiple promoters. That's why people in boxing get paid so high. It's not because of whatever it is, the argument that people make. It's because there's tons of sanctioning bodies all with their handout, as well as promoters all with their handout. That's why the fighters get paid so much, because they got to pay all these fees, all these, all these fees, all these things, all these, all these things that they, that cost a lot of money to pay. That is why. Okay. And if you allow this, and if you allow MMA to become like boxing, that's exactly what's going to happen. Okay? The fighters are going to be back in square one. Except this time, they're going to have more hoops to jump and more steps to climb. It is the it's it th- this is the problem with videos like this. They don't they 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 don't really do their research. They don't really look they don't really they don't really do their research. They just take as <laughs> as what this person just quoted in as what MMA on point quoted is as from Machiavelli they take things in face value and they don't really read the book and then they don't they don't really read the book and they don't really take the time to know or understand this is you have to understand the person who made this video doesn't really know or understand how economics works how you know politics work they don't really know much and yeah they brought two people on here but that that some that no one yeah and they he he brought two experts on the situation but you got to understand those two experts aren't giving but you have to understand, like those two experts, they're they're giving mostly. They're only giving it. They're 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 not giving. They're coming from a one sided. They're coming from a one side of the fence. They're telling it from the perspective of one side of the fence. That's what they're doing. They're not really giving you a neutral, you know, overlook of how things are going. It's more of just like a one-sided affair. It's more of coming from a one-sided affair. That's really what it is. And it's just, once again, it's just this part, it's just MMA on point. Once again, just kind of proves why (laughs) most YouTubers who make videos like this don't really do their research or know or understand how businesses work, how politics work, because it's pretty clear that MMA on point, just they don't really know or understand, nor do they really do any really hard research. Because if they would, if they did, they would know that this is that this is the game. That they would know that adding the government to MMA is not a good thing, seeing as it was the government that kept MMA out of kept MMA illegal for a long time. Also, not only that, um, it would become like boxing. And boxing for a long time has sucked. And, you know, for a long time has it sucked really bad. And you're going to get a lot of you're going to create you're going to get a lot more issues. You're going to have a lot more problems. You know, the problem, you know, this this is not a good thing. You know, trying to make it to where it's like boxing is not a good thing at all. It's just and that I mean, but once again, this just but once again, they're only looking at it from one side of the fence and taking whatever it is at face value. They're not, they're only better. Actually, let me repeat that. They're only looking at it from one side of the fence. They're not coming from a a neutral ground, so to speak. They're not being indifferent. They're not coming from a state of indifference and being and looking at it from all sides. It's more of just the one side of fighters are getting screwed, blase, blase, blase. 
the UFC needs to not the UFC needs to stop being a monopoly, blase blase blase, and we need more government. We need government to oversee this, blase blase blase. Not realizing that it, government being involved in things is not a good. Like history has proven it. I mean, if you look at just just look at healthcare. <laughs> I mean, healthcare. Just look at healthcare. I mean, healthcare is the perfect example of why you don't want the government in your shit. Okay, and if he actually, if you know, if MMA on point did their research, they would know that. But this is just once again, this is a tired argument. You get paid based off the revenue that you bring. Okay, government is not a, having the government into whatever it is. Having the government involved in business is not a good thing. It's a stupid thing, and you know. It's a stupid thing. And once again, the UFC makes it abundantly clear. They build the platform for you to market yourself. All right. That's simple. They give you a platform for you to market yourself. Therefore, the responsibility is on you. The healthcare is on you. All right. They do provide that, you know, the UFC does provide, you know, medical aid and healthcare and things like that. But what, what, but, if you want like a healthcare plan for when you retire or whatever the hell it be, well, that's on you. The problem is, is that that's on you. Okay. That that's really, that's really what it is. The problem is people want, people want to be carried, you know, that that's really what it comes down to. I'm not saying that you should, you know, I'm not saying fighters shouldn't, should not get healthcare or, aren't, you know, but the thing is, is once again, you're all grown adults. If you want health care, go get yourself health care, you know, but they're not going to hold your hand, <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, people aren't going to hold your hand, you know, so and, and that's the and that's the truth. It's just more of people don't really understand, you know, how it really works. They don't really understand how this how this works, you know, coming from somebody who worked at Walmart, I can tell you like. Walmart's healthcare is good, but it ain't great. <laughs> okay. I can tell you that for a fact, like Walmart, it's good. You know, their, their policy changes always like their policies are always changing. There's always some asterisks that unless you read the contract, you're never going to really know. And once again, it's like, it's always changing like their policies, healthcare, whatever it is, like they're, they're constantly changing. It's never the same. Also, what people don't understand, unions suck. You don't want your shit unionized. If you want your shit unionized, that's actually worse. The fact that there's fighters that want unions obviously don't know the history of unions or how, like, seriously, like, how badly, that, how bad that is. Like, if something's unionized, everyone's screwed. Like, literally, every, everyone is screwed. Okay? <laughs> like, like, everyone is screwed. Okay? Everyone is screwed. All right, that's even worse. I mean, <laughs> you know, that that's even worse. You know, um, <laughs> so I, I like I said, but once again, this just comes from people who don't know and really do their research or really understand how things work or how how when it comes to economics or politics or or even when it comes to just unions or healthcare, they just don't know or understand. They just say we need healthcare. Go to the government or let's unionize. It's okay. Like unionize unions are not a good idea. Okay. Like unions are, are not our are, <laughs> unions are not a good idea. Okay. This is actually, if you don't believe me, just look up the history of why the UFC couldn't get in New York and things like that, <laughs> you know, of why the unions couldn't get in New York and why Lorenzo Fertitta, you know, and, and why the Fertitta brothers, you know, had a heart and why, and, and the constant back and forth that Lorenzo Fertitta had with the union and the people involved. I mean, if you don't believe me, look at that shit. Like, okay. The, these people, the, these unions aren't, well, people, they're, they're, but people have to understand unions aren't good for everybody. Cause once again, you're only, it's not going to benefit the fighter. It's going to the benefit, the people who run the show. The greedy, the it's only going to benefit the people who run the show. So whoever's running that union is going to benefit from it. The people in the people who are part of the the system of the union system are only going to be the benefit or are are the only ones that are going to benefit from it. It's not going to be it's not gonna be this thing where all the fighters are gonna get what they deserve, you know? So it's just 
a lack of entitlement. It's just, it's just, yeah, it, it, it's just the same problem. Uh, a problem, it's just, you know, it's just nothing. It's the same. It, yeah. So once again, I don't know. I'm just, I'm tired of this argument. This, this argument is getting, it, this, this is a very tired argument. Okay, because it's very clear. It's it's coming from a place of entitlement, lack of knowing and understanding, and it's ridiculous. But yeah, that <laughs> I I don't know what else, I, like I said I I'm just rambling at this point because I've I've talked about this so many times with people and have explained this and it's just people just don't seem to understand or really know or I I just yeah so all right yeah thank you all for listening and. Have a wonderful day.